University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. Take a look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to talk about the temptation of Christ this morning. Man, I thought that was going to be a gimme. Now, we're week two into our new series as we're serving the Gospel of Matthew, focusing on re-examining Jesus and discovering who Jesus is and what he's inviting us into. We're taking this very difficult step forward as we go into a very interesting passage. Context matters, so where are we coming from and where are we going? Jesus is called forth, he is baptized by John, and once he is baptized, it says that Jesus goes into the desert for a period of fasting and temptation. Now you ask the question, what would you be tempted to do in the desert? Like make a really wicked sandcastle? Like what could you possibly be tempted by? It's in a a way of solidifying his place among us and showing us his ability and his way. Jesus enters into the wilderness for 40 days. It really is paralleling what the Israelites faced for 40 years as they chose not to follow in the way of God and instead wander for 40 years. And so Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 happens. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So what do you think is going to happen in 40 days after not eating? Did you know there's a difference between hungry and hangry? Uh, So hungry is just your belly starts to rumble a little bit. Hangry is when you get really irritated uh, by those tummy rumbles and you don't want to be around another human being until you have something that you can put in your mouth to eat. So Jesus is weakened. He's definitely vulnerable, maybe a little bit hangry. So what's about to transpire is is psychologically possible. Look at verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, Tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So this guy in a red jumpsuit and a pitchfork and a pencil-thin mustache pops up out of nowhere. You've got to believe that the, the, the evil one would not be this cartoonish figure that we would be able to laugh off in this moment by wearing a red leotard. But the first thing that he tempts Jesus with is hunger, because Jesus is vulnerable. He's frail from these 40 days. I don't know if I would be tempted to eat bread after 40 days, or maybe if you had tempted me with like a plate of brisket and loaded mac and cheese and a big old piece of Texas toast, that might be tempting to me, not just a piece of bread. The temptation is a physical one, one that is calling him to not depend on God's provisions. If you are the Son of God, prove it, essentially, the evil one is saying. And Jesus responds, one does not live on bread alone. Translation, it doesn't just take bread to live. Jesus responds with scripture. This is key. Look at verse 5. It says, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. 
If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the next scene is a bit more of a serious tone. The temptation is to break away from his purpose of coming to earth and take on a different role, a different mode of salvation. Jesus is the son of God, and he could have had all these things unto himself. And again, he answers with scripture, love the Lord your God and serve him only. Text wraps up here in verse 9. It says, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until the opportune time. Let's just be honest. If I were Jesus, and I'm 100% not, I would have loved to just run and free fall off of that hill just to see what would happen. But I think Satan is getting a little fed up at this point. So Satan takes the gloves off here. He says, okay, Jesus, if you're going to use scripture, how about this scripture that the angels will care for you and take care of you? And Jesus throws down the hammer and resists yet again It's not just to put God to the test, but it's to trust and to worship God alone. But this isn't going to be the last time that we read of the evil one tempting Jesus to flee or to alter God's plan for him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, shortly before he's arrested and put to death, Jesus is tempted to flee the path chosen for him. So a couple questions must be asked as we read this text. So what? What does this mean to all of us? I mean, what are the chances this would happen to us? And so it's somewhat of a doozy to begin to unpack here. We understand that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is facing temptation here. He was tempted to do all things by his own strength, by his own ability, by his own plans to to choose to live out a different way that was laid out before him. We get that. But what we need to begin to put in perspective is that Jesus did not use his divinity, his godly nature, to overcome temptation. I think Jesus wants to show us his humanity in the face of this divine temptation. He was tempted in every way, in his body, in his mind, in his soul. And I think Jesus is trying to show us that while he is human like us, he is also the Son of God. A clear picture of his identity. Twice Satan calls him out by questioning his ability to be the son of God. But there's something so much more going on here that applies to us. Let's just be honest. No one likes to talk about temptation and sin. So let's go ahead and point out that pink elephant in the room. I'm sure for many of us, as those two words rolled off of my tongue this morning, things got a little awkward in our seats. How many of you, when you hear the words temptation and sin, you picture a really red-faced, angry preacher shaking a Bible and screaming damnation at you? These two words make us so uncomfortable in a conversation because typically they're going to cause us to have to wrestle with the imperfections of our life. And most of us, if not all of us, don't want to admit that we have brokenness in our lives, including myself. So we'd rather talk about temptation and sin as if we're talking about somebody else. It's easy to talk about other people's issues. 
In fact, we become biblical literists when it comes to other people's lives. We can find all the scriptures that go against the way they're living, but somehow those scriptures that go against our lives don't seem to apply. But there's something deeper going on here. What is going on? What is the purpose of temptation? What is it? Maybe these brilliant words from the great Henry Nouwen can iron this out for us. He says, I have come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, and power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seduction quality often comes from the way that are a part of much larger temptation of self-rejection. When we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success and popularity and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. The real trap, however, is self-rejection. So what is temptation? Temptation is to entice us to become someone we are not, or to lead others away from who they are not. Maybe more plainly, temptation is the lure to not become the best person that God created us to be. Temptation is an invitation to buy into the lie that we need this, whether this be anger and jealousy, selfishness, arrogance, narcissism, impatience, criticism, apathy, self-hatred and self-loathing, fear and hatred and disloyalty, corruption and callousness and irrationability and misery. You see, temptation allures us away from the best person God created us to be. Temptation strives to convince us that you cannot be who you are and find patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control and joy and compassion and hope and love without denigrating or warping ourselves and other people. That's what's happening in our text. Satan is trying to convince Jesus that his identity and his purpose are not worth it. Instead, he's trying to convince him that this other path, this other way of being Jesus is better than what God created him to be. Now, I've got up here this nice gift box here. There's actually something of great value inside. So I wonder if there's somebody in here that would be willing to trade me what's in this box for the cash that's in your wallet. Anybody? Anybody want to make the trade? One person? Elizabeth, is that because you don't have any cash in your wallet? Oh, is that a dollar? I don't ever carry cash. I just have cards in my wallet, so that's why I don't want to make the trade. Randy, you want to make the trade? All right, let's make the trade. It's a pretty pink box, too, so it's very fitting. All right. One, two, three, four. All right, four dollars. I'll trade you here. All right. What, open it? Yeah, open the box. Tell us what's inside. A it's a single quarter. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it. You see, this is what temptation is. It convinces us that the best self, the best opportunities we have, 
have to be thwarted or, or transformed into something different in order for us to find satisfaction. I'll give you your money back afterwards. <laughs> There's this fascinating text from the book of James in which he writes, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own desires and enticed. Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Before James can get into the meat of his talking about temptation in this greater passage, he feels that he needs to establish that God is not involved in our temptation. Don't blame God, James essentially says. God has nothing to do with choosing and leading people away from the best self that God has created us to be. One definition for evil is the void of good. So if God is in essence good, then evil cannot exist within God. Therefore, why would God lead us down something that's broken and dark? So maybe we shouldn't blame God for temptation. Back in 2009, there was a 62-year-old woman who was caught stealing nearly $73,000 from her church. And when she was interrogated uh, over, you know, what would cause her to do such a thing, she said, and she insisted, that the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. it. Is one of the most common responses and reasons people give to the choices they make in their life. In some regards, many Christians have almost deified or idolized the evil one as if it's on the same level as God himself. But again, evil is the void of good. Is there some sort of void of good at work in this world? Yes, but what James is trying to argue here is God's not to blame. The evil one is not to blame. It begins with our desires, our desires within us. But alas, that what makes it so difficult is James uses the word idios here, which means our own desires. It's a possessive that he's using here. So temptation that we face each day is not an outside source, but it's an inner source down to the very nature of who we are and how we think and how we make decisions. In the late 1960s and 70s, Walter Michal, is a, a professor at Stanford University, conducted this fascinating experiment with children based around a marshmallow. Um, just a quick side note, did you know that now are making chocolate-filled marshmallows? Sorry, I just made me so happy when I saw that. But they, they took kids and... Um, kids about the age of four, and they put them in a room all by themselves, and Dr. Michelle essentially said to them, okay, Johnny, I'm going to leave you here with this marshmallow for 15 minutes, and after I come back, if the marshmallow is still here, I will let you have two marshmallows. So if you can't eat it for 15 minutes, you will get two. And to tell a four-year-old kid to wait 15 minutes for something they want is the equivalent of telling me, Andy, if you can wait two hours in the morning not to take a sip of coffee, we will bring you the largest cup of coffee that has ever been created. So what happened in this experiment was actually quite fascinating. As soon as they closed the door, two out of the three children ate the marshmallow. Five seconds, 10 seconds, 40 seconds, 50 seconds, no longer than two minutes. Some lasted up to about 14 minutes, and then they just couldn't resist it anymore, and they had to eat it. But what's fascinating is that one out of three would look at the marshmallow. They might even grab it and walk around with it, 
But eventually they put it back down, and what these children are showing at the age of four is this amazing ability to have self-discipline. What was even more fascinating is that they decided to follow these children, and 15 years later, they, they wanted to see where these children are. So by the age of 18, they found that 100% of the children that had not eaten the marshmallow were successful. They had good grades. They were doing wonderful things. They were happy. They were off to college. They had a wonderful teacher and student relationship. They were doing fine. And a great percentage of kids that ate the marshmallows, well, they tended to be in trouble. They didn't make it to the university. They had bad grades. Some of them dropped out. Even fewer of them had okay grades. Idios is a fascinating word. It has a little nuance. Not only does it mean one's own desires, but it also means that it's so distinct within our lives. James doesn't want to argue that temptation comes from our own desires, but each of us have a distinct temptation that faces in our life. It's individualized. It's very you-centric. And I think what makes temptation so hard is because no one else knows ourselves better than ourselves. We know what we desire. We know what we want. I could go on and on of all the list of things that tempt me, but those temptations would not be the same things that you face within your life. So what makes temptation so difficult is it's biological. It's contextual. The environment in which we were raised, our family systems, our biological, genealogical makeup play into determining our elevation of what tempts us within our lives. Anthropologists have found that the same part of your brain that controls addiction is the same part of your brain that controls the feelings of love. So they've made the argument that romantic love is quite possibly the most addictive substance on earth. This would lead many anthropologists to say that some people have more proclivity towards things like sexual promiscuity and pornography and the like. You see, our unique biological makeup leads to the temptation in our lives in so many different forms, and that's why so many of us are tempted with internal emotional and mental things versus outward physical and verbal carnal desires. This is what makes temptation so difficult within our lives. Temptation is you-centric. It's biological. It's contextual. Professional uh, musicians have often missed the mark um, during uh, some of their live performances. Do you remember a couple years ago when Mariah Carey was a bit off cue and lip syncing uh, during the ABC's New Year's uh, Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve celebration? And I can remember a couple years ago when uh, Fergie was deciding to do a nuanced form of the Star Spangled Banner during the NBA Finals, and the camera caught some of the NBA players trying to cover their laughter because it was so awful. Nowadays, people just uh, make videos of themselves singing, and they throw it up on YouTube, and I thought I would share an audio excerpt of uh, one said video from YouTube. Uh, Ron, let's give it a listen. Hours, everything is gone. Yesterday I found out about you Even now just looking at you So beautiful Feels wrong You say that you'll take it We're going to do this for about 30 more minutes, is that okay? one chance Wasn't a move We come missing you That's the part I wanted to wait for right there, yeah 
You see, what I want us to come to see this morning is that God is singing a song. It's the song of our lives. It's the song of the earth. It's a song of beauty and compassion. And day after day, we are faced with the temptation to be a little pitchy and a little off-tempo. However, Jesus is inviting us to sing and dance in tune with God's song. Jesus came to show us how to live and stay in tune with this song. And as we follow Jesus, we grow and we develop into this beautiful song that fills our soul with life and gives the world beauty. And yet the temptation will continue to come. Opportunities to get out of sync and off rhythm and a little pitchy. More often in my life, I have found like I'm singing like that poor young girl who thought she was singing awesome, and I was so way off. So we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus' example and leadership. The temptation story of Jesus is by far one of the most peculiar stories in all the Gospels. And just think, we haven't even got to that weird story where Jesus damns a fig tree. No matter how old we are, no matter how much we mature, no matter what station of life we find ourselves in, no matter if we were raised Baptist or Catholic or Methodist or if this whole Jesus thing is new to us, we will be tempted not to be our best selves and to bend this world to our benefit. It's an individualized human nature. Yet what we discover in Jesus is an invitation to continue to rethink our way of living and thinking. What we see in Jesus and this temptation narrative is an alternative way, the way that discover and become our best selves that God created us to be. What we see in this narrative is our pathfinder, the one who ventures out into the darkest places of humanity and evil to come out on the other side so that we see what leadership and salvation is. Jesus is inviting us to trust him. To trust that his way and his word is worth living for and by. Jesus is inviting us to see that we are loved by God, who desires to put a song in our hearts. But will we step out in faith to be in tune with that song?